Hello and welcome to another edition of my podcast, Making Things Better and Making Better Things. This one is a belter. So I'm talking to Davita Davison. I can actually barely get a word in edgeways. Davita is one of the most passionate, focused, articulate, amazing people I've ever spoken to. And this is 55 minutes. I think it's quite long for which... I'm making no apologies at all. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, she's from Detroit. She talks about uh, food and why food and health are racial issues, about how you fix them by taking them into your own hands. And we sit at this really weird or great time in, in history where suddenly um, we're valuing health over wealth now I'm, I'm not saying that wealth doesn't matter you, you need you need to earn enough money to live and and for many 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 people um that they're not able to um to live well because they don't earn enough money but when you look at those people on the lowest income they actually have access to the worst food and i don't mean not much of it I actually mean the most processed, the most highly processed and the most um, nutritionally deficient food. And the way that we've built society where we build um, housing estates or projects, as they say in America, um, in places that are actually quite hard to get to, um, you end up with very, very poor choices of shops. You might have one shop on, on an estate or on a project and they can charge what they want. And, and it's not in their interest to get fresh because it's harder to manage fresh food because it goes off. And so and so you end up going for these kind of calorie dense fast foods, of all of which there's a there's a, a role for, but, but maybe not three times a day. And so those of those people who have the least money get the worst food and good health becomes luxury rather than a, a right and what Davita's is doing is she's challenging some of that and as you know she she she, she describes detroit as um what does she say um she says my, my my city is the poster child for urban decay and she's right you know that once fine city collapsed um and is now rising and her story is ultimately uplifting um, I'm going to say nothing else. She says it's so much better than me. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, I'm talking to uh, Davita Davison. And I'm doing it over Skype. So please forgive us if it drops out a little bit. Uh, Davita, welcome. Thanks, Mark. So glad to talk to you. It's a joy as ever. And Davita, tell me who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Davita Davison. And how I identify is a proud um, native Detroiter. I was born and raised on the northwest side of Detroit, and I have the privilege to run a nonprofit organization that's called Food Lab Detroit. And Food Lab Detroit is a incubator and accelerator. We are a community first and foremost of about 200 locally owned food entrepreneurs in the Detroit metropolitan area that really looks like Detroit, Mark. And when I say looks like Detroit, it is highly representative of Detroit's population, which consists of African-Americans, um, which consists of um, Latin Americans, Middle Easterns, Southeast Asians, and of course, um, um, white folks as well. And so we are a community of food entrepreneurs um, that really represent um, the city of Detroit. And what Food Lab does is that we incubate 
And so we help entrepreneurs who are at what we call the ideation phase of their business. They just have an idea of starting a food-based business, whether that's a brick and mortar, like a restaurant, coffee shop, cafe, or an added value product or consumer packaged good, like chips or kombucha or um, hot sauce. And we help those entrepreneurs take their idea um, and launch, and in many cases, accelerate that idea into a full-fledged business. And so that's what we do, and, and, and that's who I am. Amazing, amazing. Now we'll come on to Food Lab in a minute because it pulls many strings in my heart that does for lots and lots of reasons. And I was fortunate enough to see you speak at the International Business Festival in um, in Liverpool and you nailed it. You brought the house down. People loved what you said. So I know a little bit about your story and we'll go there in a minute. But I'm really interested to start off with. I want to hear about Detroit. I want to I want to hear about growing up there. I want to I want to know what it smelt like, what it sounded like. What what were the sounds and the smells and the colors of Detroit? Yeah. yeah. And so and before I give you a, a kind of description um, of Detroit and how it looked and how it smelled and what it felt like, let me first ground you and your listeners in a little bit of history really quickly. I want to give you some context. And the context that I want to provide is that I am a native Detroiter um, and very, very proud of it. And the reason why I'm so proud of being from Detroit is that before I was even born, my parents made a very conscientious decision um, that affected my unborn body. And that is my mother and father, Mark, are a part of a migratory pattern that is historic um, in the United States of America. And that migratory pattern is called the Great Migration. And that is between the year 1910 and 1970, over 6 million descendants of slaves, African-Americans, moved from the Southern states to Northern cities. My mother and father, were a part of that great migration. And my mom and dad moved from rural Alabama, Selma, Alabama, to Detroit, Michigan, carrying nothing but hope, determination, and faith. They were going to a place called Detroit, Michigan, where they were going to start a life with themselves and their unborn children, which would include later on in life, my brother and myself. And so I provide this context for your listeners and for you because I want folks to understand that Northern cities like Detroit during the time that I was born was occupied by African-Americans who were from the Southern states of the United States. And so when I tell you what it looked like, when I tell you what it felt like, I tell you and I, and I, and I, and I position my, my statement in history because I want you to understand that it was wrapped all under the banner of what I call Southern hospitality, because that the people who raised me were folks that were from the South, who all they knew was this, this ethos of Southern hospitality. And so what Detroit really smelled like, and not only did my parents, of course, carry hope and faith and determination when they made this migration from the South, to the north is, but they also carried their food ways, right? Something yeah. in the north that we call now soul food. 
And soul food was really a political statement. It was about the Southerners who came from the South and they brought with them that Southern food way. We call it soul food because it was a way of African-Americans during that time to make not only a, a political statement with our bodies, but also a political statement with our food um, by opening um, restaurants that really represented um, the African-American uh, culture of the South. And so when I tell you again what it smells like, for me, the summers um, in Detroit combine two things. Not only the smell of barbecue being cooked in like these homemade pits that my mother um, and my father and my uncles and aunts used to make from steel, if you can imagine, garbage cans. So if yeah. you can imagine a steel garbage can, then imagine my uncle and my daddy um, taking that steel garbage, uh, garbage can with a saw and then cutting it in half, putting it on its side, creating a grate, and then using that because you have to understand a steel garbage can can conduct heat. And so, so daddy and my uncles used that apparatus because it conducted heat so well. And so you smelled barbecue that was in the air. You knew it was holiday time in Detroit, whether it was 4th of July or whether it was um, summer break or whether it was Memorial Day, because man, oh man, you would hear the phone ring and Mark folks were like, well, who got the plate? Whose house am I going to be stopping by? So the, so the, you can imagine the air that is filled with what we call whole hogs on the barbecue grill or chicken, or, or if your fathers or your uncles or your grandfathers were hunters like mine, they would go hunting and they would then put goat or raccoon um, on, on the grill as well. Couple that then with the fresh smells, again, being from the agricultural South, imagine African-Americans making that journey up North and bringing with them their agricultural skills. And so there wasn't a yard in my neighborhood in Detroit where mothers and fathers didn't plant them some fresh fruits and vegetables. So along with that barbecue, um, I would make a fresh salad um, with my mom and my aunts and my cousins. And that ingredients for the salad would come right out of our little garden. The so mommy would grow tomatoes and onions and cucumbers and corn. So imagine a, a fresh kind of garden salad along with that. Um, I, I don't, I would be remiss to not talk about um, the greens that we also uh, made in, um, in the gardens as well. So all of that kind of, uh, if, you're, if, if you're at all familiar um, with, with Southern food or soul food, that is really the smells of kind of our community and neighborhoods. And so, of course, we had hamburgers and it was quintessential Americana um, as well. So, you know, you had your hamburgers and you had your hot dogs and in the South, what they call hot polar sausages um, as well. All of that um, was on the grill, along with steaks, along with fish, whole fish, because, you know, again, not only did we have hunters in the families, oh, baby, but we had some fishermen in the family as well. And so it was just good eat going on. That fresh corn would make its way to the grill as well. Um, and so those are some of some of the smells, particularly during the summertime in Detroit. And and I and, and I and there's no way in the world 
that I am going to not lift up the fact of being born and raised in Detroit, you did not hear the sounds of Motown. And so of course you heard uh, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, of course you heard Diana Ross and the Supremes, and of course you heard Smokey Robinson, the Temptations, um, the Fourth Tops, absolutely. But what folks may not know is that Detroit is also home of gospel music as well. And so you would hear Maddie Moss Clark, um, you would hear the Clark sisters, you would hear the Winans, and you would hear um, a lot of gospel music as well. I come from a family um, of ministers. And so gospel music was definitely, your Mahalia Jacksons um, was definitely staple um, in, in my home as well. Now, now, mind you, and I'm dating myself, I was born and raised in the 70s, Mark. And so mind you, during that time of growing up in Detroit, when my cousins would come over to the house and we would barbecue as a family and we would we would make vegetables from the gardens, um, vegetables that, I mean, we would make, you know, uh, side dishes from the vegetables that we had grown in the garden. Also be mindful that there were a lot of children. And so I can distinctly remember, and the reason why I say I'm dating myself, because this was before CDs, and this was before you can use your phone and, and uh, access, I guess we call Spotify or iTunes. Uh, during my day, there were what we call albums. We called them 45. We called yeah. them record players. <laughs> okay. And so I can remember growing up as a young girl, we would have dance contests, um, you know, in the backyard. And so I, you know, I'm a, I'm a young girl, my tweens and teens, you know, and so some of my favorite artists of the day were, were New Edition. And so, you know, I'm, I'm dancing yeah. off of Michael Jackson. Right. Yeah. Um, or, or, or print. Um, and, and, you know, so, so you are, you know, these are, they might, I mean, they, they may, they may be iconic groups today, but I remember when they were like just boy bands back in the, back in the seventies and the early eighties. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to Janet Jackson. A lot of folks love Michael, but man, we, we, I love Janet too. Um, and so those, those are some of the things that we were listening to and times have changed. They, this was before, and, and I'm, I'm mentioning these groups specifically, Mark, because this is during the 70s and 80s. So this is before the hip hop era, even. This is before rap music, right? Um, yeah. this, is, this, is, this is, man, I'm going to tell you something. This is R&B. I remember slow dancing for the very first time to Patti LaBelle. Um, <laughs> and so um, all of that music that came out of the African-American community whether it be jazz, whether it be gospel, whether it be R&B, um, and whether, of course, be the sounds of Motown, um, were, these were the soundtracks of my youth. Um, these, were the, these were the things that you know, I listened to, that my family listened to. These were quintessential Detroit moments for me. And so, I mean, you, you conjure, you, you, you create this um, amazing 3D technicolor smell-o-vision. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a city that is just alive with vibrancy and yeah. life. And, and I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a food, a, a culture of food that is as much based on plants as it is, as it is on, on, on animal protein, but, but both yeah. of those things. And then 
And then two things happen in my head. And I mean, obviously, the economic collapse of Detroit is well documented. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. But but what happened to the food? How, how did how did America and most importantly, how did black America, who were at the worst end of this kind of challenge, how did their food choices get so limited and their and their diet so poor? Yeah, Mark, you know. You know, it it is it is it is. Um, I've got to tell you, it it's emotional for me, Mark. You know, and I, and I'm going to have this conversation with you, but you may hear me pause, right, um, a bit, uh, because this is tremendously emotional for me personally. And I say this, Mark, is because I did not realize this until uh, I would say maybe two or three years ago. It, it, it has just dawned on me. It really is. And I think I was reading an article about two or three years ago that appeared in the New York Times and it really dawned on me like an Oprah caused it your aha moment. But this article that I was reading in the Times talked about this new generation um, that they are calling um, the sandwich generation. And I thought, what is this all about? What, they didn't create something new. Like, what is this? And they talked about this subset of individuals that are in this, what they call sandwich generation, are these individuals who sit between two things or two generations. One is the baby boomer generation. And the other one is a generation kind of like a young folk. And I say that because the sandwich generation is challenged by two things. Number one, they are challenged because they are taking care of their aging and elderly parents, and but they are also taking care of or raising their young children. And so they're caught right in the middle. And even though I don't have any children, uh, my brother just had a baby almost three years ago um, to my beautiful niece, Aaliyah Davison. But, and I see, you know, um, what it takes now. I have a front row seat on all of the energy and efforts and intentionality that one has to take when raising a child and bringing birth into the world. But now I'm also sitting right at the intersection of seeing my parents who are now in their 70s and early aging, they are aging and they are about to leave the world. So Mark, I sit at this place of birth and death, the birth of my niece about two and a half years ago and the aging and ultimate death of my parents um, within the next, who knows how long mommy and daddy are going to live, but I'm starting to see them sunset. And the reason why I bring this up is that I've had the opportunity in my lifetime to see the migratory patterns of African-Americans and of, 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 of white America as it relates to Detroit go through this 360 degree kind of um, um, lens. What I mean by that and the reason why, again, I started off by telling you and your listeners about the great migration is I saw my mother and father because they raised me in Detroit, but they moved, listen, they moved from Alabama to Detroit in the 60s. And here's what happened, is that in 65, in 60, between 1965 and 1967, 
in the United States of America, there was a great deal of what we call civil unrest in cities that were predominantly occupied by African-American bodies. Some people called them riots. We like to call them rebellion. And so in Detroit, there was the rebellion of 1965. In 1967, I apologize. And it happened in Watts. It happened in Baltimore. It happened in New York. It happened in Newark. And it was a direct response um, of the inequalities that were happening in African-American communities um, at that time. And so you saw these rebellions, whether it was they were rising up due to inadequate housing, they were rising up due to income inequalities, they were rising up because of police violence and police brutality. Um, you saw these rebellions. I mentioned that because what that triggered or what that accelerated, Mark, was something that's called white flight. That means white folks left the cities, Detroit being one of them, and they moved out into what we now know as the suburbs and now even what we call the exurbs, right? And so with the, with the um, exiting of white folks who left these cities, it also presented a tremendous, tremendous challenge because with this exit of population also left the extraction of resources. So now you have a population that are leaving cities like Detroit and going out into the suburbs, taking with them their resources. And what that did also left a void in communities, particularly African-American communities. So the story goes like this. You have uh, neighborhoods and you have cities and you have communities that have been devastated due to rebellions or rioting because African-Americans were protesting the lack of equality or the lack of access um, in terms of how they were being treated in their communities and cities. And so there was this undertaking to create, how do you, how do you generate wealth? How do you generate entrepreneurship? How do we build small businesses predominantly in black and brown communities, right? This was in response to the rebellions and the rioting. After it was all said and done, it was like, okay, now how, do, how are we gonna build up these communities? How are we gonna help bring these communities back? How, and, and how are we going to incorporate black folks in this? And here was one of the solutions, Mark. One of the solutions was, what would it look like if we trained, taught, provided loans to African-Americans and allowed them to buy into a franchise model where they could own and operate fast food restaurants. So the model, because I had to tell you, when I was growing up in Detroit in the, six, in the late 60s, I was born in 1969. So when I was growing up really in the 70s, Mark, can you believe this? There were no fast food restaurants in my neighborhood at all. I remember when the first McDonald's opened in my community. I remember when the first Wendy's opened in my community. My mother and father was like, what is this? Like, what, 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 what is this? What is this going on? And my, for a long time, mommy and daddy didn't even allow me or my brother to eat out of these places. And my mother was like, why in the world would I spend two, three dollars for a hamburger when I can just go buy um, some ground, some hamburger at the grocery store, I can make you all hamburgers at home. 
but it was a, exactly. it was an economic model, Mark, where it was like, how do we bring entrepreneurship, small business development, wealth creation in African and American, American communities using the franchisee models of fast food restaurants in order to do it. That, and that's the foundation of it right there, right? And so here it is. Now these fast food restaurants, Abbott, some of them yet being owned by African-Americans. So I wanna, I wanna be very clear that folks understand that African-Americans are complicit, right? I'm not, I'm gonna hold my own community responsible now. African-Americans are, are complicit in the scaling and the proliferation and the growth of fast food restaurants in our own community, because some of them were even owned by African-Americans. So I just wanna be clear about that. Yeah. So, so, but, but here's where the, here's where mm, the, the perfect storm um, um, started to occur. So not only now do you have this, this, this growth, this acceleration of fast food restaurants happening in the African-American communities. And I just wanna be clear, not all of them were owned by, 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 by black folks. So I, I just wanna be clear about that. But sure. some of them were. If you know the history um, of, of Detroit, there actually was um, uh, a famous gentleman uh, by the name of Brady Keys who owned a, a uh, uh, Burger King franchise and, every, and everybody knew him. And he had this commercial um, again, with his face on the commercial, so so there is so so there is a bit of bit of tension there. So I want to acknowledge that. But during the same time in which you see the the increase of fast food restaurants happening in African American communities, you start to see a decrease in grocery retail happening in African American communities. Why? Because grocery stores were not owned by African-Americans. And so here's my thinking. When you have businesses that are owned by African-Americans, those businesses are able to survive in those communities. Grocery store retailers and owners were not of African-American descent. Many of them were white or they were a part of this um, this, this, this demographic called Chaldeans, which were Middle Easterns who were Catholic, who were fleeing persecution in the Middle East, and they, just, they found home in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And many of them had grocery retail in, in, in Detroit. So, so now, Mark, I want you to start imagining what is happening to access and the availability of food when you have this up and fast food and you have this decrease in grocery retail what's happening in the community oh, now you can, also, feel, you can you can you can feel the change okay and so i want you to, i want you to be cognizant of the demographic shift the, the, the shift in demographics and how commercial retail is following the demographic sea change that is happening in the city of detroit so not only do you have this decrease in independently owned grocery stores, but large grocery stores, national grocery stores are following the demographic. So as Detroit's population is going from 1.5 million to 100 million, I mean, from 1.5 million to a million to 800,000 to 700,000, what's happening? Big boxes, large national train grocery stores, they're following their demographic out to the suburbs. 
And not only are they following their demographics out to the suburbs, I want you to be cognizant of how grocery retail has started to change. Grocery retail has changed now, Mark, from being this small footprint of maybe, I don't know, maybe 10,000, 15,000 square feet. In some cases, we had small market um, as well that were between 5,000 square feet. So now grocery retail is changing uh, to 25, 30, 40,000 square feet. They're calling them superstores. They're, they're talking, uh, there was one terminology, uh, uh, stack it high and let it fly. I mean, they were stacking these shelves to the rafters. They needed space to do that. And where were they going to find space? Where were they going for tax incentives? Who was recruiting them out the suburbs? Because yeah. the suburbs, they were building, they were, the suburbs was building its infrastructure, right? You got housing, you need retail. And so who's suffering, Mark, as a result of that? People who are left Everybody. Well, you, you can see you can see this the city becoming almost like a a ring donut. So the middle the middle is just, exactly. is just exactly. so, city so what, the hole in the middle of the donut. The cities, Mark, are becoming the hole. You got it. And so yes. not only are the cities becoming the hole in the middle of the donut, but Mark, you and I are both smart. We do this for a living. We study this stuff. But I want folks to understand that this is also happening with the support of policy that has taken place. Policy is taking place to now build up the suburbs. Policy like, again, something that uh, they call urban renewal projects, where they actually built freeways to connect people from what they call the commerce of the city or the downtown to connect folks to what they call the new residential communities or the bedroom communities that were being built in the suburbs. When they built these highways, Mark, guess where they built these highways? Straight through African-American neighborhoods. Okay. Is, is, that, is, that because no one, is that because no one would complain or is that because the political power was weak or is that because it, they just didn't care. There was an element of, of racism built into those decisions. You know, Mark, you can say all of the above. You can say all of the above. You can say that's where land was cheap. You can say that's as a result of systemic and institutional racism. You can talk about the propaganda that was fit to the African-American community that said, you know what, because of your housing, because of the conditions that in which you are living in, we are going to tear down these communities and we're going to rebuild anew and you're going to be a part of it. We're going to relocate you, but we're going to move you back. Mark, don't act like this isn't happening right now. A lot okay. of this is happening. You know yeah. what? We're going to improve because now, Mark, what we get a chance to see, at least from my lens, my purview, is I'm seeing now the reversal of that. I'm seeing that folks now from the suburbs, particularly the children of the parents who moved out to the suburbs, guess where they're moving? They're moving back into the city. So, so, so we're seeing the same thing here in the UK. We're seeing we're seeing these vast islands in the centre that once were that they were once like food deserts, and and everyone worked there, but then they went somewhere else to live. We're now seeing this return of living into the middle. Are we seeing this in Detroit as well? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. We're seeing the exact same thing, and it's not only in Detroit. It's not only in Detroit. We're seeing it in Harlem. We're seeing it in Philadelphia. 
We're seeing it in Washington, D.C. We're seeing it in Oakland, California. We're seeing it in Atlanta, Georgia. We're seeing it um, in St. Louis, Missouri. We're seeing it, Mark, unfortunately, and I said, and I'm saying to myself, damn it, here we go again. We're seeing it in places and spaces in the United States of America where bodies that are black and bound that preoccupied um, these spaces that are now being, and I'm gonna go ahead and use the G word, that are being gentrified. Yeah. And in many cases, I don't see gentrification or diversification being a bad thing. I think it is fantastic to have a diversity of not only people, but a diversity of income um, living in, in a community. I think diversity is a great thing, but what I do think is a bad thing is displacement. And that is what I'm seeing in Detroit as we talk about communities that are being revitalized, communities that are coming back. But I see the children of the parents who moved out into the suburbs who quite frankly don't want to live in the vanilla suburbs. They don't want to live in these uh, uh, man-made communities. They don't want to stay behind the iron gate. Man, they want to, again, live, work, play. Matter of fact, Mark, I got to tell you, these new, this new generation, these millennials and even younger, hell, they don't even want to drive, Mark. And, I, you know, Detroit is going to be like, like Detroit, Motown is like, wait, 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 you know, we're the home of automotive. These young people are like, mm -mm. we want to take mass transit. We want to use shared apps to do shared vehicles. Like we are, we are, we are leading the forefront on what we call autonomous vehicles. Their, their lifestyle is totally changing. And you think for one moment, they want to live all the way out in the suburbs. They want to buy a car, drive into the city, go to work. Then they're eating here, they're dining here, and then drive back out. No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. They do not. Okay? Hell, I don't. No, I, mean, I, 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 I agree. I mean, the, Gen, the Gen Zers are fascinating because it, it, two or three things are happening at the same time. So, so we're seeing this, this shift and this shuffling of kind of urban living. And you're absolutely right. Who owns a car? No one wants to own a car. You'll have one on demand real soon, yeah. as you were with it, with everything else. But we're also seeing the value of health rise above that of wealth. We're suddenly seeing populations changing their priorities. Now, this is really interesting because I'm guessing it's the same with you. I'm guessing you're seeing this change, what people eat and what people do. That's right. And so, and so what, what, and, I, and I'm at the forefront of this. So I'm, I'm, I'm by no means saying that this is indicative of all African-Americans um, in Detroit um, at all, but I would say that I am really on the forefoot, forefront of a movement um, in Detroit that is happening in and around um, the social determinant um, of health, but more importantly, how are we creating healthy communities? And a, a lot of what's uh, around helping creating healthy communities, a lot of it has to do with the types of food that we are eating and the safety of the streets in which um, our residents, our neighbors, our community members are living in. And so one of the things that I love uh, and the reason why I do this work is because what I am seeing is a return to urban agriculture. 
particularly in Detroit, what I'm seeing is a return to growing your own food. Now, mind you, when mommy and dad, my mother and father were growing their own food, Mark, when they came from Alabama to Detroit and they had a little plot of land in their backyard, a lot of that was done as a result of wanting to have culturally appropriate food. They wanted to bring their culture up north from them, the culture they had left behind in Alabama. So a lot of it was about, uh, was about culture. What is different, it's the same thing, it's food, it's gardening, it's agriculture, but now it's different. The context is different in Detroit. It is in addition to culture, it is now about sovereignty because now we've had the experience of living through times in which every major grocery store abandoned Detroit from the suburbs. So as a response to that, as only Detroiters could respond, we made the decision that never again will we be in that vulnerable situation because what we would do now is that we would think about strategies and tools and how to create the infrastructure to grow our own food so we would not ever be reliant upon grocery stores to provide us and our children with fresh fruits and vegetables. And so now when you see urban agriculture or backyard gardens or community gardens or school gardens in Detroit, a lot of it has to do with sovereignty in addition to culture. And so I'm, I'm seeing this return back to the land in Detroit, but the intentionality is a little bit different. And so now folks are talking about not only how do we grow our own food, but how are we feeding ourselves now? And so now there's this movement around uh, starting with the seed, the growers who are growing the food, but now how are we teaching our children and our parents and our elders on how to take this food that our farmers are growing and make it something delicious and healthy? So what are we doing with the kale and the collards and the turnips and the peppers and the tomatoes and the onions and the sprouts and the that we're growing? How are we returning back to the land, not only growing, but eating? Another thing that, that, that I see too is this return to vegetarianism or veganism. And the thing is, is that I now am a full-fledged vegetarian. I have been one for now almost a year, but it's funny because as I'm studying more and more and more about uh, the vegetarian lifestyle, I'm reminiscent around how I ate and how my ancestors ate growing up. And that is, is that the culture of Southern food has always been about the vegetables. As a matter of fact, there was dish in the South. If you spend any time in the South, there was a dish in the South that we called meat and three. And meat and three essentially means that this dish would have one protein, one meat, and it would have three vegetables, right? Um, yeah. I'm reminded how we ate in the South because my ancestors, my great-grandparents, my grandparents did not have a lot of money. And so they ate the hogs or the protein that they raised, but more importantly, they had a field or a yard full of produce. And so eating fried chicken or even ham was really a luxury mark um, as opposed to being something that we did on a day-to-day -day basis. If you look at the tradition of soul food or Southern cooking or in African-Americans, it, it is a tradition that is built on a cuisine that comes from legumes and rice and 
in green vegetables. Rice and pea is one of my all-time favourite meals. And we, we, we misunderstand not, not just black American culture, black culture generally as being, as being very meat-based. And I don't know when that happened and I don't know why it happened, but it's so great to hear you bring it back to what it was. Yeah. But but the thing is is that you know and so and so there is there is a history there is a history too around even um again meat in the African American culture in the African American community I mean particularly the hog I I I've got to tell you so so the reason why you know eating bacon or or eating sausage um or eating pork chops was such a uh, a delicacy it is because black folks traditionally did not eat that part of the hallmark you have to understand as slaves as sharecroppers as workers we got the scraps of the hog so black folks ate stuff like pig feet or pig ears or we ate the snout we ate something that was called chitlins which is nothing but the intestines of the pig we had ate things that were called hog head cheese that were the brains of the pig and so when you got to the opportunity, Mark, to eat a little bit of bacon, or if you had some ham on your table for Thanksgiving or for New Year's or for Christmas, we had a terminology for that. We call it, oh, you living high on the hog. That means you, <laughs> you got you, you know, you got you some sausage, baby. You living high on the hog because traditionally we did not eat those parts of the pig. And so there's 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 history mark and in, in, in so much that you can learn from the African American uh, 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 community just by understanding our food ways. That's amazing. So so food food is a racial issue. Oh my gosh! Oh my goodness! Uh, abso absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think it's I think. Uh, and here's the thing. I, I think that it is uh, very much so a racial, an ethnic, a cultural issue, period. Which is why I get such joy, Mark, of doing the work that I do at Food Lab. Because as much as we are an incubator or an accelerator um, of helping folks start and launch and scale their food-based business, my challenge is how to do that in a way that number one is culturally appropriate, but how am I doing that in a way that is also bringing different ethnicities and different cultures and different communities together? Because for many of us, before we even know about a certain culture, and this is the kind of the social scientist in me, um, it's what I got my undergraduate degree in in Michigan State University with the social science, so I'm wearing that hat right now. I'm always thinking about before you meet someone, even from that, from that culture, um, if you taste their food, what is their food telling you about that, that culture? And how am I structuring an organization where I not only lift up the entrepreneur to help them start and scale their business, but I also lift up their culture and to help them create a narrative, help them to create a story, help them to share their culture with others. And basically, Mark, what I'm trying to do through food is to bring down these barriers that divide us, that separate us, and to bring us closer together. And I'm doing that, or I'm trying to do that around the table. So how is food not only an economic development strategy? How is food not only building wealth? And I talked a little bit about that in terms of how it's 
built up economically the inner city through fast food. I'll talk a little bit about how it did generate wealth for African-Americans by buying into fast food restaurants. And so I'm looking at how can I use that same ethos of helping to create food-based businesses, but I'm not so concerned with creating a franchisee model that in many cases is extractive and exploitive. But how am I helping folks to create food-based businesses that are locally owned, that are independently owned, but are also bring to it a certain amount of culture where we are educating folks through food and bringing people together a little bit closer around the table to begin communication and dialogue around that particular cuisine. And so a little bit of education um, in terms of food-based businesses, but then I'm also thinking about how food could also be used as this third place. And when I say the third place, and we think about the various different places where folks kind of occupied most of their time, first place is usually home, second place is usually uh, work. The third place is where are people coming together and gathering and having communication and, and talking and having dialogue? Some people do it at church. Some people in the African-American community do it at barbershops and beauty salons where they're having dialogue and conversation. And meeting. Some people do it at gyms, YMCAs, community centers, libraries. These are all examples of third places. But can coffee shops be third places? Of course they can. Can diners, cafes, restaurants be third places? Of course they can. So how are we conscientiously designing our food-based establishment that we're lifting up culture but we're also creating the space and the design of these restaurants so that we can also infuse this, this, this ethos of creating a place that's also a third place so that people can come together, gather, um, not only to eat, but for conviviality and to have conversation as well. That's really interesting. I, 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 I need to bring this to an end in a minute, but this, I, God, we could do another one of these. I'm really interested uh, in, in this idea of food as a third place and al almost like it can be a third physical place, the coffee bar, the, the, the your grandma's your grandma's kitchen table. But it can be somewhere that you go for love and reassurance together or, or if only for yourself. Oh, now, I, I'm really interested in, in, in food memories. And uh, before we finish very quickly on what, your, what you see the future, because I'm really interested in the story you told about the, uh, the, the, the overweight guys who had diabetes and changed their diet. I'm really interested in you telling me a bit about that. But what's your first food memory? Hmm. What is my first food memory? Hmm. Um, I would probably say um, two memories really come to mind. I'm, I'm trying to think about the first ones that popped into my head. And I would probably say um, the first one that popped into my head is my mother um, is, a, um, is a passionate um, cook and, and baker. So I would say the very, very first memory that popped into my head has to be my mother preparing to make one of my favorite cakes um, is a pound cake. Yeah. And as much as I love the pound cake, Mark, I love the fact that I would watch my mom, even as a young girl, I don't know, I'm two or three years old at the time, 
I would watch her take out her mixing bowls. And mind you, mommy didn't measure anything. It was all by the touch. And put the ingredients in the bowl and mix them together and preheat the oven and get out her pans. But what I liked most is that after mom would mix all of the ingredients together and put them um, in the pan and prepare the pan for baking, mom would give me and my brother and my cousins the bowl. And we would do, it was called, we would lick the bowl clean. We'd take our little fingers and what was left of that batter, um, we would eat. And so this, this sitting on the floor of the kitchen with my brother and my baby cousins, all with our little fingers in the bowl, kind of eating the batter um, from the cake that mom was preparing to bake. Again, it's about family. I think that's why it's a memory. It's about family. It's about the intergener intergenerationality of, of being in the kitchen um, with your mother. Um, it's about love, having your mom prepare a cake and make a cake for you and your family. It's about sharing those memories with my brother and my cousin. And then I think the second thing that is most memorable to me, um, it is probably the creation of what we call homemade ice cream. And this is very reminiscent of family reunions. It's very remembrance of backyard parties. And so homemade ice cream is that you take a bucket um, and you have this silver drum that's inside of the bucket that is then packed all around with something that's called dry ice. My mother and my aunt would make a custard. It could be a flavored custard and they would put that custard in that steel drum surrounded by dry ice. And for at least the next five or six hours, uh, we were responsible for what we call churning the ice cream. It was almost like churning butter. And I remember that because one, at, one after the other, family members would say, it's my turn. All right, Uncle Jimmy, it's your turn. It's time for you to get over here on this handle and churn this bucket. Daddy would come and churn the bucket. I would come and churn the bucket. Again, it's about communal labor. It's about the love. It's about the touch. Everybody had their hand in making this ice cream. And it was about family. And so all of my food memories has to do with family. It has to do with the handmade touch. And it always has to do with this exchange of communicating from one generation to, the, to another. And so that, that's what food is, is, is for me. I love that. And what I love about, I've got this, I, there's so much here, but I love this whole idea of sharing the labor, sharing the work, and then yeah. sharing the love afterwards. Because, yeah. because increasingly we see the delivery of food by the matriarchy onto the table to feed the family as almost like a service that we expect rather than something that is shared. And, and I, I take great delight in cooking, you know, not not all of the food in our house, but my fair share of the food in our house. And we use the kitchen as 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 a community centre. And when our when our kids, because we've got four children. In fact, I'm going to be a grandfather um, in May. My my eldest is um, my eldest is expecting. So our oh kids. Congratulations. And I'm only a year older than you. I was born in 68. So you were born in 69, yeah? I was born in 69. 69. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a year older than you. And um, I just, when our kids have been growing up and talking to their friends, that their friends don't have the same hub that is the kitchen. 
it's very okay. functional it's where you go to prepare and then you eat something else somewhere else whereas we, we, we all cook together we share together and you've described in so many ways you've described my childhood as well as yours now I'm not African-American and I've not been at the wrong end of that horrible culture that put me down. I haven't I haven't had those things to deal with. But but you've been you're so technicolor in your descriptions and so poetic that that I was with you all all the way. Just to finish off, because we do you know what? We are nearly 50 minutes and th that is brilliant. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Just to finish off, just two questions. Number one, just just recap that story about about diabetes for me and number two why are you hopeful about the work that you're doing where's it going to take you yeah and so there is a um there is a entrepreneur um couple um that's a part of food lab detroit uh their names are erica and kirsten boyd and they are the co-founders of detroit vegan soul and what I love about Erica and Kirsten and their story is that they not only have created an amazing model um, for a neighborhood-based restaurant that is plant-based, but it's done in a way that is culturally appropriate. They have taken soul food, they have turned it on its head, or they've taken it back to its original roots and created a business model where they have been able to go from scaling a food-based business, where they started, if you can believe this, selling brown paper bag lunches to catering to open up now two restaurants working on three neighborhood-based restaurants under the banner Detroit Vegan Soul. But oh. if that's not more, if that's not amazing enough, the amazing thing about their story is that yes, they sell healthy vegan soul food, but it's not what they do that's so amazing. It is why they do it. And they do it because these women decided that the buck was going to start stop with them. They both are African-American and in both of their families, there's a high rate of cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure and obesity. Um, and Erica's father died um, from a, what we call a diet related diseases and that they knew that they were predisposed to diet related diseases as well. And they start and they decided we need to stop this. This the buck stopped with us. The buck stopped here, and the buck stopped now. We are going to be the ones in our family to stop this death as it relates to the food that we're putting into the, our mouths, the lifestyles that we are leading, and the diet that we have. And so with that passion, with that energy, with that determination, they decided to launch a business that we all, we all know and love called Detroit Vegan Soul. But it was rooted in the realities of their experience of their family members dying as it, as it related to diet-related diseases. And they thought, if we can do this for our family, might we also be able to do this for Detroiters? And that is giving Detroiters not only access to vegan food, but giving them the language to be able to talk about 
the fact that we gotta do something in our communities to reverse the trend of what we know is health-related issues that impact and affect our communities. And so, and so I and so I love that. And so much, and I've been so inspired by it my, myself, Mark. And listen, I'm an African American woman, so I know about these things intimately. Both my parents um, have been diagnosed with cancer. Both my parents, thank God, are now cancer-free. My mother had colon cancer. They removed 16 inches of her colon, and my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, and so I know that what cancer um, is, feels like um, and what it can do. And so I decided myself, um, because I surround myself with farmers, I surround myself with entrepreneurs who are cooking good, healthy, clean, plant-based food, I decided myself, Davida, if you are going to be teaching about it, you got to be about it. And so I, too, have given up meat. I, too, now am a vegetarian. I, I'm not yet a vegan. I still have to have my butter and my cream. Um, but I'm trying more and more and more to lean toward um, a, a vegan diet. But I like to say now I'm eating more plant-based. Um, and I am doing that because of the influences that I have had in Detroit, but also because I do want to be a part of the solution to help uh, not only stop, but to reverse the trend of diet-related diseases that affect so many African-Americans in the city of Detroit. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful um, to be around such thoughtful and intentional entrepreneurs who are creating businesses um, at the behest of, of creating impact and change for Detroiters. Oh, Davita, you are a whirlwind. You, mm. you work you do really matters, and the way you do it is, it, it's it's incomparable. Um, thank you so much for your time. You, oh, I, I will, I wish you all the best. I'm going to come and see you at some point. Oh, absolutely! Wow, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it, it's just an incredible speech, talk, podcast, and you can see her. Um, you can see her TED talk if you if you Google her. Um, it, it, equally as fiery and um, an, an amazing woman who, along with projects all over the world, correcting the imbalance between between people and nature and people and health in a really gentle way. Um, so yeah, please let me know what you think. It's really good to hear from you. Um, my email is mark at thisisape.co.uk and uh, you know, let me know if you enjoyed it, let me know if you didn't, let me know if there's anybody you think I should be talking to. Um, this podcast isn't about selling more stuff for people, this podcast is about talking to those who are making things better or who are making better things. I have no problems with talking to people who make products um, as long as they're, they're, they're better than the alternatives that are out there. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing. Uh, until next time.